Welcome to the January 11th, 2024 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, we'll explore the role of fibrinogen polymerization in thrombosis. New research shows that in mice unable to generate polymerized fibrin, occlusive thrombosis is suppressed, yet hemostatic function remains preserved. The findings have potential implication for generating new and potentially safer treatments for thrombotic diseases. Up next, preventing CD19 negative relapse after CAR T-cell therapy in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Dual-targeted CAR T-cells, transduced with CD19 and CD22 CARs, is a strategy that may prevent antigen escape. Finally, increased levels of the RNA-binding protein FUS has been identified as an effector of hematopoietic stem cell aging. Aberrant phase transition and aggregation of FUS alters chromatin structure in aged HSC and may be one of the driving forces behind their impaired function. Let's go to our first research article, titled, Mice Expressing Non-Polymerizable Fibrinogen Have Reduced Arterial and Venous Thrombosis with Preserved Hemostasis. The first author is Wusak S. Hur of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It's widely recognized that thrombotic diseases are the most common cause of death in the United States and other developed countries. It's also clear that arterial and venous thrombosis are driven by distinct mechanisms. In arterial thrombosis, it starts with atherosclerotic plaque rupture, while venous thromboembolism is triggered by stasis of blood flow. Yet these two forms of thrombosis have one thing in common, fibrinogen. Elevated levels of fibrinogen are correlated with increased risk of both arterial and venous thrombosis, and fibrinogen is a major protein component in occlusive thrombi. When the coagulation cascade is activated, thrombin mediates cleavage of monomeric fibrinogen to fibrin, which polymerizes to form an extensive fibrin matrix. Very high levels of fibrinogen, that is to say hyperfibrinogenemia, promote increased coagulability and formation of a dense fibrin matrix that is resistant to fibrinolysis. At the other end of the spectrum is hypofibrinogenemia. In mice, inducing a deficiency of plasma fibrinogen, either genetically or pharmacologically, reduces venous thrombus formation. So quite a bit is known about the relationship between fibrinogen and thrombus formation, but relatively little is known about the specific functions of fibrinogen and polymerized fibrin in thrombosis and hemostasis in vivo. That's where we join her and co-authors. They evaluated the impact of fibrinogen on arterial and venous thrombosis using a variant of fibrinogen that they describe as non-polymerizable. Their studies involve mice with a mutation in the FGA gene, which encodes the fibrinogen A-alpha chain. As a result of a mutation in its thrombin cleavage site sequence, interactions needed for fibrin polymerization are prevented. Essentially, the variant is locked in the form of a fibrinogen monomer. Investigators studied mice that carried this non-polymerizable fibrinogen variant in a heterozygous or homozygous state, as well as mice with wild-type FGA and fibrinogen-deficient mice. The results show that mice carrying the variant were protected from venous thrombosis and also from arterial thrombosis, depending on the severity of the injury. However, these mice also demonstrated preserved hemostatic potential. 
In a model of carotid artery thrombosis, in which ferric chloride is used to induce injury, both heterozygous and homozygous mice were protected from occlusion as compared to wild-type mice. However, the protective effect of the variant was no longer evident when higher concentrations of ferric chloride were used. By contrast, there was no evidence of occlusion in fibrinogen-deficient mice, even with high concentrations of ferric chloride. Finally, in an inferior vena cava stasis model of venous thrombosis, mice carrying the variant in a homozygous state displayed virtually complete protection from thrombus formation. And even the heterozygous mice demonstrated reduced thrombus incidence and a reduction in thrombus mass. According to investigators, that finding suggests partial expression of the non-polymerizable fibrinogen is sufficient to confer protection. Notably, mice carrying the fibrinogen variant had normal platelet counts. They also displayed fibrinogen-dependent platelet aggregation and intraplatelet fibrinogen content similar to what was seen in the wild-type mice. Importantly, the variant mice also exhibited preserved hemostasis and normal wound healing times after skin incision. By contrast, the fibrinogen-deficient mice exhibited considerable bleeding and delays in healing. Taken together, the findings indicate that a non-polymerizable fibrinogen variant can significantly suppress occlusive thrombosis while preserving hemostatic potential. A commentary on this study, authored by Li Zhang of the University of Maryland School of Medicine, can be found under the title, Better with Poorly Performing Fibrinogen. Zhang says these findings shed new light on the role of fibrin and fibrin polymerization in thrombosis and hemostasis. Zhang says it's surprising that mice incapable of generating polymerized fibrin nevertheless exhibit normal hemostasis, wound healing, and platelet aggregation. So this paper supports the notion that it's not necessarily fibrin polymerization, but rather fibrin that is needed to maintain these responses. Several factors may contribute to the ability to preserve hemostasis and wound healing. For example, there remains a functional fibrinopeptide B subunit of fibrinogen that can be cleaved by thrombin to expose a fibrin domain that can interact with TPA, factor three, and other ligands. These findings highlight an opportunity to target fibrin polymerization, rather than the coagulation cascade or platelet function, to balance prevention of thrombosis and maintenance of hemostasis. Non-polymerizable fibrinogen's capability to form a dense fibrin network is poor yet it retains support of platelet aggregation, endothelial cell binding, and other functionalities. Altogether, Zhang says, these properties showcase the promise of potentially harnessing non-polymerizable fibrinogen as a safer therapeutic agent for thrombotic diseases. The next article is titled CD19-CD22 Targeting with Co-Transduced CAR T-Cells to Prevent Antigen-Negative Relapse After CAR T-Cell Therapy of BALL. The first author is Sarah Gorashian of Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London, United Kingdom. As background, CAR T-cell therapies targeting CD19 have been transformative in the treatment of patients with relapsed or refractory B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Across a range of studies, remission rates following treatment with CD19-targeted CAR T-cell products exceed 80%. Yet the benefit is often short-lived. Up to 57% of patients achieving complete remission relapse within one year. One major hurdle is limited persistence of CAR T-cells, and another is the emergence of CD19-negative disease. Loss of CD19 antigen occurs in up to 68% of ALL patients relapsing after CD19 CAR T-cells. 
One way that CD19 immune escape might be overcome is to target a second antigen, and in particular, CD22. CD22-targeted CAR T-cell therapy has also demonstrated encouraging results in pediatric ALL patients. That makes dual targeting of CD19 and CD22 a compelling strategy. Various approaches have been tried, including the administration of separate CD19 and CD22 CAR T-cell products, engineering T-cells to express CD19 and CD22 CARs, and engineering a CAR to recognize both CD19 and CD22. But to date, none of these approaches have substantially improved on CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy in terms of eradicating antigen-negative relapse. But in the current Phase 1-2 study, Gorashian and co-authors test a new strategy for targeting both CD19 and CD22 that may be much more effective in preventing antigen escape. Their work leverages the observation that in patients relapsing after CD22 CAR T-cell therapy, CD22 is downregulated. So these investigators developed a CD22 CAR that is highly sensitive, even to target cells expressing low levels of that antigen. The CD22 CAR is paired with a previously developed CD19 CAR that has a fast off rate after binding, which investigators say translates into enhanced CAR T-cell expansion and prolonged persistence. So the present Phase 1-2 study includes 12 children with advanced B-cell ALL. Of note, three patients had prior CD19-negative disease. The median patient age was 12, and one-third of the patients had previously received a CD19 CAR T-cell therapy, tisagen leclucel. Following lymphodepletion, patients received one infusion of 10 to the 6th CAR-positive T-cells per kilogram. Toxicity was as expected for CAR-T therapy. 11 of 12 patients had cytokine release syndrome, but all grade 1 or 2. 5 of 12 patients had neurotoxicity, but also grade 1 and 2. One had grade 4 neurotoxicity six weeks post-infusion, and it couldn't be ruled out as a potential immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome. Efficacy results were encouraging in terms of measurable residual disease and rates of complete remission, with or without hematologic recovery. Two months post-infusion, 10 of 12 patients, or 83%, had achieved an MRD-negative complete remission. Interestingly, two of the three patients with CD19-negative disease had MRD-negative complete remission. According to investigators, that validates the efficacy of CD22 CAR T-cell therapy. However, not all responses were durable. Of 10 responding patients, five had recurrent disease, two had emergence of MRD, and three relapsed with CD19 and CD22 expressing disease. In four out of these five cases, the recurrent disease was associated with loss of CAR T-cell persistence. But with a median follow-up of 8.7 months, there were no antigen-negative relapses, suggesting this dual-targeted strategy may prevent antigen escape. At one year, event-free survival was 60%, and overall survival was 75%. In a commentary titled, is immune escape in the rearview mirror? Swati Naik and Stephen Goschalk of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, say this study provides hope that the dilemma of antigen-negative relapse could be overcome. It's possible that with longer follow-up, some antigen-negative relapses could occur, but the study shows zero antigen-negative relapses over a time frame when, in other studies of CD19 or CD19-22-targeted CAR-Ts, antigen-negative relapses did occur. The commentary authors say the present study does have one key limitation, lack of CAR T-cell persistence. 
Both intrinsic and extrinsic factors contribute to this. Strategies to overcome this may include novel CAR designs, synthetic T-cell receptors, cytokine support, or manipulation of regulatory circuits to overcome T-cell dysfunction or exhaustion. Authors of the present research study say they are working on manufacturing methods that may support longer persistence of a CD19-CD22 CAR T-cell product. Nike and Gottschalk conclude that this team's astute observations on leukemia biology and mechanisms of antigen escape led to an informed CAR design that demonstrates no loss of the CD19 antigen upon relapse. Similar insightful approaches to addressing lack of persistence could allow for the promise of long-term cures in more patients with relapsed or Refractory ALL. Our final article is Aging Disturbed FUS Phase Transition Impairs Hematopoietic Stem Cells by Altering Chromatin Structure. And the first author is Bai Xu Tong of Tsinghua University in Beijing, China. We know that with aging, there are clear changes in the function of hematopoietic stem cells. Aging HSCs exhibit an impaired capacity for self-renewal and reconstitution. This is accompanied by a bias toward myeloid cells, increased rates of anemia, compromised immunity, and higher risk of hematological malignancies. The results of some studies suggest that HSCs undergo an epigenetic drift marked by alterations in the transcriptome and compromised function. Yet the molecular mechanisms behind aging-related changes in HSCs have yet to be fully elucidated. A number of strategies to rejuvenate aging HSCs in mice have been evaluated, but without success. For example, engrafting aged HSCs into young recipient mice has failed to restore their function. By contrast, other studies demonstrated some rejuvenating effects when middle-aged donor HSCs were either transplanted into young recipient mice, stimulated by insulin-like growth factor 1, or manipulated by mitochondrial membrane potential. A better understanding of how HSC function changes during aging would be very helpful to support ongoing research into preventing or overcoming age-related impairment. That's the focus of the present study by Tong and co-investigators on HSC aging. They have studied the functional role of an RNA-binding protein, FUS, which stands for fused in sarcoma. And they find, for the first time, that FUS promotes HSC aging via the reorganization of chromatin structure. FUS is a protein that can undergo liquid-liquid phase separation, a process that is responsible for the formation of biomolecular condensates. These cellular compartments can concentrate macromolecules without surrounding membranes. Physiologic functions of FUS include transcriptional activation, DNA repair, and localized translation. In studies of mice expressing an FUS-GFP fusion gene, they found that protein levels of FUS increase in aging HSCs and form aberrant FUS condensates. In turn, these condensates induce chromatin reorganization, creating a transcriptional signature specific to aged HSC. Using the mice, the researchers show that expression of FUS is heterogeneous. HSCs with high levels of FUS have compromised FUS mobility and were similar to aged HSCs both in terms of function and transcriptional profile, including myeloid-biased differentiation. And HSCs with low FUS expression in aged mice exhibited youthful function, according to the researchers. 
The investigators further found that physiological aging and stress increased the proportion of HSCs with high expression of FUS. The FUS high HSCs had a global chromatin structure that was different from FUS low HSCs, yet similar to what is seen in aged HSCs. Since abnormal FUS aggregation has previously been identified in multiple neurodegenerative diseases, Tang et al. examined the formation of FUS condensates in HSCs. These were dynamic and reversible in younger mice, but were drastically reduced in aged FUS high HSC. The research further shows that the FUS high HSCs had compromised interactions with TADs, or topologically associating domains. TADs are genomic regions within which specific DNA sequences interact with each other more frequently than with sequences not in the TAD. The investigators describe this as a blurring of boundaries between the TADs, and they say this relates to a reduced ability of the CTCF protein to bind to chromatin, which in turn is caused by the abnormal FUS condensates. In additional studies to see whether targeting FUS by gene knockdown could improve HSC function, the investigators were able to enhance the reconstitution capacity of aged FUS low HSCs, but not aged FUS high HSCs. This result suggests that the chromatin organization in aged FUS high HSCs has irreversibly changed, which could explain why they resist rejuvenation. Altogether, these findings reveal that aberrant FUS condensates promote HSC aging by changing the structure of chromatin. According to investigators, this mechanism might be extrapolated to aging and to diseases related to aging. Atsushi Iwama and Motohiko Ashima from the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Tokyo in Japan provide an accompanying commentary. They note that several important questions remain. For example, how does FUS protein accumulate specifically in HSCs and lose its dynamic properties with aging? And how do FUS condensates induce chromatin reorganization? Further characterization should create a new field in the research of HSC aging. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries in which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.